We'll hear argument now in number 00730, Adiran Constructors, Inc. versus Mineta. Uh, Mr. Pendley. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1989, the small family business that is Adiran lost a federal contract because of a racial program and the race of its owner, Randy Pesch. In 1995, this court held that Adiran had standing to seek forward-looking relief because that program prevented it from competing on an equal footing. In 2001, Adiran returns to this court because it still can't compete on an equal footing. Uh, At- Mr. Penley, uh, treat, if you will, fairly shortly uh, coming up in your argument. The government says that in the direct procurement program, these sort of preferences that you're challenging are simply not used in Colorado. Uh, you say they are. Do we simply have a factual dispute here? No, Your Honor. The evidence is quite clear that the program still exists in Colorado. There are a number of mechanisms. The government calls them means. Adirond calls them tools or mechanisms by which the government imp- imp- implements this complex statutory uh, scheme that it has. It has uh, monetary incentives, which included the subcontracting compensation clause, which the United States now asserts is turned off in Colorado as a result of the benchmark studies. But in addition, the... Challenge those, as I understand. Your Honor, Adirond has challenged all manner in which the... But they apply only in the state-subsidized programs, and you're, you're claiming that your challenge is limited to the federal program. No, Your Honor, the monetary incentives apply in the direct federal procurement program. In, uh, in but a, I thought the monetary incentives have been declared unconstitutional by the district court, affirmed by the Tenth Circuit, and that's out of the case. Not at all, Your Honor. No, the, what they call the subcontracting uh, compensation, compensation clause. Well, didn't both courts hold that that was unconstitutional? What happened was that the uh, the the district court held that the entire program, all of Section 8D of the Sub- Small Business Act, was unconstitutional. The United States, on the 20th of June of 96, asked the court to narrow its decision to include only the subcontracting compensation clause. On the 23rd of June, the, the district court declined. At the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Tenth Circuit held the district court was right as to the 1996 subcontracting compensation clause, but there was a new subcontracting compensation clause now in place, and it had been changed sufficiently. The one that you were complaining about last time around, that one has been held invalid, is that so? It, it, Your Honor, it is the same. You haven't there, there, had to challenge that, that. Excuse me, I don't understand. The, the Tenth Circuit, I thought, said that the clause that you were complaining about last time around was invalid. It agreed with the district court to that extent. The government hasn't challenged that determination. So what you were originally complaining about is now over and gone. Is that correct? No, Your Honor, it is not correct. The subcontracting compensation clause is still alive. It still applies against Adirond. As this court held in Jacksonville, simply removing that self-same uh, program does not uh, uh, allow the case to be moot. The, uh, the United States is still implementing... No, you just answered my question. I'm, you said I'm they sorry. Removed, they removed the program. No, Your Honor, uh, they did not I remove the program. I asked you if the case was moot or not because of it, but it's no longer what the specific thing you were complaining about no longer exists. Is that right? It is not right, Your Honor. Uh, Adirond continues to maintain the subcontracting compensation clauses in place in Colorado. It is in place in Colorado, and it applies against Adirond. If we disagreed with you on that, are there other issues on which which are live and which Absolute, you have standing to? Abs- and what abs- are those? Absolutely, Your Honor. Your Honor, on the issue of standing or mootness, this court held in 1995 that Adirond had standing, and as the court said in its uh, Adirond 2000 opinion. Uh, in the Adirond case and in the Laidlaw case, the issue now is not an issue of standing but one of mootness. Has indeed the Adirond case been mooted? It has not been mooted because the United States in its tool bag of mechanisms by which it applies this program, it still has others. To answer your question, Justice Kennedy, it has, for example, the monetary, the mandatory subcontracting plans. 
these are plans that the United States uh, requires of contractors to adopt and Adirond put the three of them into lodging uh, at, at tabs A, B, and C, and on through K of uh, our Adirond's lodging in its reply brief, in which the United States, on three separate instances since this court ruled in Adirond 2000, where the United States has used the mandatory subcontracting plans against Adirond. And in fact, all three guardrail portions of those three contracts were won by, I'm sorry, it's, it's in. It's in the, the, that yellow book, the big yellow. Uh, are, are these in the, are these provisions you just mentioned in paragraphs of four through six of 15 U.S.C. 637? Yes, Your Honor, they are. They okay, are required. Now, that, that, those are the plans as to which the Court of Appeals said in in one sentence, rather terse comment. Nor are we presented with any indication that Adirond has standing to challenge paragraphs. Well, as this court said in Adirond 2000, the courts and parties have been confused as to the difference between standing and mootness, and uh, the Tenth Circuit was confused as to mootness and standing, resulting in the court's Adirond 2000 decision, and it appears to be still but confused as it, to the It two. says that you have no standing to attack these paragraphs that we've just discussed, and, and you don't challenge that in your petition for certiorari or in your or in your opening brief? Well, Your Honor, we believe the issue of standing is always before the court. It was not an issue before it was not an issue in the original petition in nineteen eighty nine, yet standing was addressed as it properly is always by the court. Uh, but what are, Second, the, but, the issue of lack of standing is not always before the court. The court the court certainly cannot uh, render a judgment in a case where there is no standing, but where a party doesn't doesn't present any any standing uh, material, uh, the court's not going to go looking to see whether, in fact, there is it or not. Well, well Your Honor, the... All the cases you're citing are cases where the both of the parties assumed standing and the court looked into it on its own. But, but where, where standing has been denied below and, and the party doesn't come forward challenging that denial, I don't know of any case where we say standing is nonetheless an issue. Well, Adirond believes that standing is, is fair under Rule 14a is fairly included within the questions presented because it was plain error for the Tenth Circuit below to hold that Adirond did not have standing because the Tenth Circuit below addressed the SCC and yet declined to address the statutory uh, uh, program Mr. that were. Penley, yes, did you um, challenge below? The Small Business Act provisions, Section 8B, 4 through 6. Absolutely, Your Honor. In Adirond's amended complaint on the 22nd of January of 1996, uh, Adirond challenged all the statutes, all the regulations, and all the contract provisions promulgated uh, as a result thereof. Were, were, did Adirond bid on contracts um, issued by states with federal assistance? Yes, Adirond has bid on uh, state-assisted or federal-assisted state contracts. Are they that, an issue in the suit? Not an issue in this case, yeah. Your Honor. So the only thing that you now say you're challenging are contracts, uh, direct contracts. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Your Honor. It's the direct federal procurement program, which remains unchanged. And the Tenth Circuit seemed to think that you did not challenge those small business act sections that I... Well, the Tenth Circuit was absolutely incorrect. It's plain error for the Tenth Circuit to reach that conclusion. The Tenth Circuit looked at, for example, this court held that Adirond challenged two things. Number one, the financial incentives, and number two, the uh, statutory and regulatory regimes, the racial presumptions that are their foundation. Can you cite us any uh, filing in the district court that specifically referred to Section 8D4? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, in, uh, on, first of all, uh, on the 20th of June of 1996, the United States uh, appealed to the district court and said Adirond only challenged the SCC. It didn't challenge everything. The district court denied that. Then on the, on the 19th of, the, of September, uh, August of 1998, the United States, in its uh, appeal to the Tenth Circuit, said the district court held that Adirond had standing to challenge everything and, and we don't think that's true. 
In our... Uh, well, we have a joint appendix. Could you yes. refer us to the pages where you challenged Section 8D, 4 through 6? Can you say on page so-and-so of the joint appendix, it shows that we did that? Well, Your Honor, I, I can cite to the pleadings that, that Adirond filed in this case uh, where Adirond asserted that all parts of the program, all the statutory provisions that allow this program to exist and the United States to implement it uh, have, been, have been challenged by Adirond. What it says Was on there a separate um, question in your uh, petition for certiorari address to 8D4 um, through 6? No, there was not a separate question addressed to that, Your Honor. What they didn't say you didn't file it. What the, what the circuit said in footnote 32 on page 84 of your appendix, the parties have not addressed paragraph 4 of section 8D at all. And because there is no indication from the parties that Adirond has or will bid for contracts governed by that paragraph's requirement, we do not address it in great detail. Now, I take it that the problem here is that since that time, you have tried to get a contract, and you have tried to get a contract from a contractor who has in the contract the very clause you're trying to attack. Now, if I'm right about that, what are we supposed to do? The lower court didn't address the issue you want to raise. The lower court thought you had no standing at that time. You probably didn't have standing at that time. You probably do have standing now. So what is it you suggest we do? Do we send it back to the lower court? Do we dig the whole thing? Do we do something else? Your Honor, uh, Adirond had challenged consistently. First, first of all, the subcontracting compensation clause is one mechanism that the United States developed to implement the statutory program uh, that Adirond challenges. Adirond challenges not just that tool or mechanism by which it's implemented, but those statutes that are used. This court held in Adirond 2000 that the subcontracting compensation clause came directly out of 8D4E. That was the holding of this court in, in Adirond 2000. And so when the, when the Tenth Circuit holds in the footnote to which the justice cited uh, that, that the parties have not discussed it, in fact, there was no need to discuss it because it was clear that this was the mechanism by which, this was a statutory uh, mandate by which the United States used the subcontracting compensation clause against Adirond. What's the answer to Justice Breyer's question? That Adirond had standing at that time... No, what are we supposed to do? He gave you uh, a premise and said, what do we do? Do we send it back? Do we dig? Do we something else? But, but the premise was that you had no standing at the time the Court of Appeals wrote this decision. Do you agree with that premise? I do not, Your Honor. Thank you. The reason Adirond does not agree with that premise because the Laidlaw decision holds that once Adirond had standing as a result of this Court's 1995 decision, that standing continued until such time as the United States somehow made the case moot as a result of the revocation. Well, I thought Laidlaw stood for the principle that standing is judged as of the time the suit is filed. Yes, Your Honor. And subsequent changes affect mootness, possibly, but not standing. Yes, Your Honor. Is that correct? Is that That's correct? my understanding. But so what are the, the questions before the court on well, the My question was not quite so technical. It seemed to me that you're trying to raise a serious issue. And the fact is that the Tenth Circuit never addressed it. Now, the reason that the Tenth Circuit never addressed it is what they say. It's because you didn't address Section 4, subsection 4 of Section 8D. And they didn't address it because there was no indication there would be any practical problem in the future because you didn't, they at that time, thought you weren't bidding on the contract. Things have changed. That's the premise of my question, not a technical question. It makes that practical assumption that's in paragraph, in footnote 32. And so my question was, what should we do? Conclude that the Tenth Circuit was wrong 
in stating what it stated in that footnote because Adirond specifically challenged 8D4. Well, you raised it, but you surely didn't address it. In fact, you didn't even address it in your principal brief, and the government has certainly not addressed it in their, in, in their principal brief because everybody thought the fight was about these, these new regulations that, that modify the, comp, the subcontractor compensation clause rather, rather than this other clause. Now, you may well have preserved the objection, but the fact is it hasn't been discussed below, and it has barely been argued in the briefs here. Your, your reply brief is devoted to it, but the government's principal brief certainly isn't. Well, what, what Adiran addressed was the consti- at the Tenth Circuit was the constitutionality of this, uh, of this racial uh, program, and, and there are a number of mechanisms by which the ra- racial program is implemented against Adiran. That flows out of Section 4D, uh, uh, Section 8D4, Four to six. That's right, but all of those other mechanisms, the government says in their brief, have been washed away by by the by the benchmark study provision, which eliminates which eliminates the difficulty. And in your reply brief, you do not contest that. Oh, you yes. simply say that despite the benchmark study, there is still one other objection we have, and then and then you focus on the on the subcontractor. Uh, um, commitment requirement in, in uh, 84. It is one of the mechanisms by which the United States continues to implement uh, this, this regime, this program. And, and that wasn't discussed below, and it had barely been discussed in the briefs here. In, in addition, Adiran noted that the benchmark study uh, allows it to be turned on and turned off, and the, it still can be turned, in, turned on in the state of Colorado. What, what do you mean by that, uh, well, uh, to be you know, turned on United, and turned off? Pardon me, Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, the United States asserts we do these benchmark studies, we do them about once a year, and we decide where underutilization takes place. Now, these benchmark studies don't comply with Croson because they don't examine qualified, willing, and able, they don't look at subcontracts, and, uh, and they assume that racial disparity means racial discrimination. But the United States says in those states in which uh, there is not underutilization. We will not use some of our mechanisms like uh, price evaluation adjustments and other, other monetary incentives. However, we retain the ability to use the monetary, excuse me, the mandatory subcontracting clause as, as Adirond has pointed out in this logic. In addition, the United States reserves the power to use these set-asides uh, to achieve the Well, you say they reserve the power. Does, they, does that mean that in a state where they say, like Colorado, where they say we're, we're not using it, they, they nonetheless do use it, or, or that they could later no, use they, it on a different study? That's, that's what our logic demonstrates, Mr. Chief Justice. It demonstrates the United States is today still using in Colorado the mandatory subcontracting clauses. In addition, the United States continues to use, as its nine March memo points out, the set-asides in Colorado as well as the mentor-protege program. So these, these uh, programs by which the United States uh, uh, uses the, the racial preference program in Colorado, those mechanisms still exist. But tomorrow the United States, as a result of an overdue benchmark study, could conclude, well, now Colorado is into the underutilization category. These monetary mechanisms go back on. But to the extent that your, your answer, in effect, tells us uh, that the controversy is live and presented based on what you have in a lodging. You're really asking us to make a, a determination of fact in a disagreement between you and the government as to whether they're being used or whether they're not being used. And doesn't it make much more sense for us to send, if that's what the case is going to turn on, doesn't it make much more sense for us to send it back to facts, to courts that engage in fact-finding? Uh, and that will make that determination on the basis of evidence uh, as distinguished from our making it on the basis of a lodging. Well, the United States cannot assert that it does not use the mandatory subcontracting incentives because it's required by law. It's required by 8D4-6. It has asserted that. I mean, That's what I thought they said in their briefs. Maybe maybe you say, I mean, and and they have filed... uh, uh, a memorandum from Arthur Hamilton, Federal Lands Program Manager. Now, your assertion is that that is not authorized by law. 
I'm asserting that it violates law and it violates regulation. It violates 48 CFR 19201. Your Honor, if you hear, hear me out on this, uh, on, the, on the 9th of March, the United States was invited, on the 24th of February, the United States was invited by the Tenth Circuit to provide us additional in, in, indication as to how this case is moved. On the 9th of March, Mr. Hamilton wrote a memo, and he says, here's how it's moot. We're not going to use the SCC in Colorado anymore. Now, of course, as of the 30th of June of 98, apparently under the benchmark studies, they had stopped using the SCC. But now all of a sudden on the 9th of March of 2000, they say, well, now we're not going to use it anymore. So Adirond comes forward to this court and says, it doesn't matter if they stopped using the SCC, as that 9 March memo shows, Your Honor, the United States says we'll use the requirements of the FAR and we'll use the set-aside. And then, Lee, then may, may I ask you... Your Honor, may I, may I finish this? I'm, I apologize. This is important to my case. And so, so, so Adirond files this lodging and says, wait, look, they're still using these FARs and they're hurting us. And so on the 24th of August, the United States comes forward and says, oh, oh, wait, we've changed our mind. Not only we're not going to use the SCCs, now we're not going to use the FARs either even though on the 9th of March we said we would use the FARs. But whether they've abandoned the FARs and whether they've abandoned the SCC, they are still using the set-asides in Colorado. And, Your Honor, I don't think the United States should be permitted to moot this case by withdrawing this program on the eve of this argument and, and then allowed to reinstitute it uh, as soon as this court... Uh, Mr. Penley, uh, may, I, may sorry, I now ask what is very important, I think, in this in this case, and, and you seem to be uh, walking to, away from it. I apologize. This court is a court of review, yes. not a court of first view. The Tenth Circuit isn't even a court of first view. To the extent that you are arguing things that have occurred since the last litigation, one would expect you to be in the district court with the current controversy. So one question is, what do we have, what lower court determination are we reviewing? And the second is, what is the concrete controversy that you have? Last time it was easy to see. You bid on a certain contract, you were the high bidder, and nonetheless you didn't get it. Now, what is the focus of this case? It's no longer that contract, because that $10,000 um, bonus is out of the picture. Your Honor, the, the controversy Adoran presents in 2001 is that Adirond still is unable to compete on an equal footing because the United States still has in its tool of in its toolkit mechanisms by which it is applying this racial preference against Adirond, and it is a matter of uh, mootness indifference whether it is the the monetary incentives, the mandatory subcontracting clause, uh, the set asides, or the mentor protege program. The United States is still it still has mechanisms. It's still using it against Adirond notwithstanding its attempt to Mr. tell this Henley, court that it's withdrawn those. May I ask you just one question? Yes. I'd like to just assume for a minute that you're dead right on everything you've argued so far. I'd like you to spend a minute or two explaining to me why you think the program is unconstitutional. Absolutely, Your Honor. The, first the specific reason. provisions of the statute that you challenge are unconstitutional. Well, under strict scrutiny, the court must start, as Croson dictates, with the question, has, is there a strong basis in evidence of a compelling governmental interest? Congress declined this court's invitation, generous invitation in 1995 to provide that. Instead, the Congress said, we'll leave it up to the courts. Uh, we don't know. And furthermore, let's get some information on this. Let's ask the General Accounting Office to do a study. That report from the General Accounting Office is in. Your first point is that the congressional findings are inadequate. There are no findings, Your Honor. They asked the GAO, find something for us, find the facts. And the GAO came back just like City of Richmond did in, in, in uh, the Croson case and said, we don't know how many DVEs they are, we don't know what market they're in, we don't know if they're qualified, willing, and able, and we don't know how many subcontracts they win. The GAO said in its report, the lack of information prevents anyone from knowing the nature of this program. And, and that's, at, uh, uh, that's at page 6, 26, and 27 of Adirond's petition uh, appendix, or uh, merits appendix. The second reason it's unconstitutional, Your Honor, is simply because it's not narrowly tailored. It presumes that all people of certain racial groups are socially and economically disadvantaged and entitled to the benefits of the program. Uh, without any individualized findings, uh, there are no 
time requirements. It's ageless in its ability to reach in a person's past. Time, uh, timeless in its ability to affect their future. There's no severity requirements. There's no in the USA requirements. No in the construction industry requirements. And nothing removes the taint from an individual. Not winning the Nobel Peace Prize, not election to the U.S. Senate, and not graduating magna cum laude from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Nothing removes the taint. And that lack of individualized finding requirement uh, uh, demonstrates it's not narrowly tailored. And the regulations can't save it because the, the agency has admitted on the 30th of June of 98, we can't separate the social and economic, uh, social and economic determinations one from the other because that violates the intent of Congress. Mr. Chief Justice, may I reserve my time? Very well, Mr. Pendley. Uh, General Olson will hear from you. General Olson, if, if uh, counsel for the petitioners, it would be fair to infer there's a certain amount of bobbing and weaving going on on the part of the government in this case. Would you address that somewhere? Thank you, Mr. Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, may it please the court, I certainly will. Uh, I believe there has been no showing of any bobbing and weaving of any sort on the part of the government here. What we have, first of all, the subcontractor compensation clause is no longer a part of this case. To the extent that Adirad had standing with respect to it, that provision of the law was declared unconstitutional. The government has not challenged that provision. That provision there is no evidence in this record that that provision is being used with respect to Adirad at all. With respect to the... And that was the provision that was the focus of the original suit? Yes, Justice O'Connor. Now... Well, can, cannot those under under the uh, amended statute, cannot uh, uh, some uh, additional compensation be provided, but subject to the new regulations? Well, if we distinguish between the, the federal aid program and the right. direct federal procurement program, and the subcontractor compensation clauses, the United States government has abandoned in all respects. Those provisions have not been justified, and... The United States government is not employing those. With respect to the clauses... You're, you're not employing them on what basis? On the basis that, that you have been like determined them? to be unconstitutional. And the United States is not pursuing that. Now, what is the, where the bobbing and weaving has occurred is, as this Court has identified, uh, Adirond has changed its position. It now has decided to challenge the subcontractor clause provisions of the direct procurement um, act actions by the Department of Transportation. But as this court noted, and, and the Tenth Circuit specifically held, there was no indication that Adirond at the time was challenging those provisions or that Adirond has or will continue to bid for contracts or subcontracts covered by those paragraphs, the race-conscious provisions those, of those, those paragraphs. Those provisions were specifically mentioned in Adirond's amended complaint. They, they were mentioned. Specifically mentioned. The challenge was to the compensation clause provisions. All of the litigation up to the point of the reply brief in this court had to do with the subcontracting compensation provisions, which are not no longer in this case. The clause that Adirond now challenges cannot be and is not being applied in the areas in which Adirond does business. Well, Pursuant it, to it certainly didn't come as late as the reply brief, Mr. Olson. Uh, the, uh, uh, the petition for certiorari says the following, that the government is, is favoring uh, these racial minorities. This is on page two of the uh, petition for certiorari. Through a combination of compulsion and incentives, as to compulsion, the statutes require every private prime contractor on penalty of being ineligible to win federal contracts to establish and adhere to a plan to try to hire DBEs as subcontractors. The, that is precisely the issue that they're It was, it was, they're it was mentioned in, at, at the beginning of the brief and not addressed in those provisions were not addressed in the arguments of the brief. But more importantly, Pursuant to the Department of Justice guidelines issued in 1996, those race, any race-conscious provisions in the statute may not be applied in any area of the country unless they're justified by the Department of Commerce benchmark study that shows a disparity in effects in those districts. 
the Department of Commerce made its study, and in all but eight states, which do not include Colorado, those measures have been ruled out of bounds, and they're not being applied, and the Department of Transportation has confirmed that. Uh, but uh, do, are the benchmark studies conducted every year? They're to be conducted every year, but they're not actually being conducted that, as, so what, that often. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> it's one of those, one of those government programs that it, it is hoped will be conducted more often than they actually get conducted, just, <laughs> Chief Justice Rehnquist. But uh, a, a new benchmark study could find that Colorado was uh, uh, subject to this. Well, it's conceivable, yes. That's, that's entirely possible. But there's no evidence that that will occur. There is no evidence that that is likely to occur. That is not usually... Well, there, there is evidence that uh, Adirond is working in a context where regulations are changing year to year. Uh, in order to affect the one, uh, the, this one goal to, to, to which it, it claims there is a sub substantial doubt in any There of is no evidence in this record that the subcontract clause provisions, which Adirond is now discussing, have been applied ever in Colorado or in those states precluded by the benchmark study. What is the so basis for not applying them, Mr. Olson? That, that, that's what puzzles me. What possible basis is there? for the government not to apply them. They are required by the statute. Well, and, and also they are required by the holdings of this court to apply and interpret that statute in a constitutional fashion. The, what, precisely what this court discussed in Adirond is to implement whatever programs it has in a narrowly tailored fashion. What the Department of Justice did after this decision in Adirond is enter into a lengthy study determined that race-conscious programs or, or provisions of federal statutes could not be applied in ways that were not narrowly tailored, responding directly to this court's guidance. As a result of that, the Department of Justice study indicated that they would only be applied, only it, it, even at the outset, in areas where there was evidence of the direct effects of discrimination in federal contracting. The Department of Commerce thereafter conducted a study, did not find this disparate impact in terms of effects of discrimination in the areas in which Colorado exists, in fact, in 42, 42 states. And as a result of that, the Department of Transportation has not used and has not employed the, the, the race-conscious provisions of those clauses in those areas. Well, Mr. Olson, does... Are those clauses covered by Section 8D4 through 6? Yes. And I thought that Mr. Pendleton argued that, in fact, in Colorado, some of those provisions have been and are, in fact, now in contract forms. They are in the contract forms, but the department, that is, again, another carryover of instances where they probably should be removed from the contract forms, but they're not being in implemented or enforced to impose any race-conscious remedies. Well, why fact. wouldn't but the, why wouldn't the contractor have standing to say that I'm contracting, I'm trying to do business in a milieu where the government has, um, through either prior or existing policies, uh, required contractors to put in clauses that injure me, and I want those clauses removed so that I can do business on a fair basis. Well, in the, the, and he yeah. has standing to say that now. Well, he, well, in the first place, the three contracts that were mentioned in the reply brief, mm -hmm. um, Adirond was not the high bidder in those three contracts. Um, and Adirond has not alleged... High bidder or low bidder? I mean the low bidder, excuse me. In fact, um, in the submission that it's... That it, it, Put before the court. So, despite all these years of litigation, he still has to litigate bid by bid. Well, he has got to demonstrate, under, as I understand this court's holdings with respect to standing, he's got to show some immediate impact or the potential for actual harm. Now, what is what the Department of Justice has said? Race-conscious remedies will not be applied in these areas. The Department of Commerce has delineated the areas. The Department of Transportation has again on August 24th, as submitted to this court, made it absolutely specific that it is the policy of the Federal Highway Administration that separate percentage goals shall only be required in those areas where the well, department... All of this is new since the Tenth Circuit looked at Yes. What are we supposed to do now, please? I, I mean, this th case... these are new 
things the government is presenting. Well, no, what the government has said in this August 24 memorandum is entirely consistent with what the Department of Justice guidelines require and what the Department of Justice and and the Department of Transportation has been saying all along. To the extent that those provisions appear in the contract, this document that was issued on August 24 says contracting officers shall disregard those goals in the contract. They're still in the contracts. I'm a contractor, and I have signed a contract that says I will make the special provisions for minority firms, and I will try to get these goals, and I know that I'm subject to penalties if I do not make a, quote, good faith effort. Have letters gone out to those contractors and said, hey, forget about it? No, no letters have gone out. You just come up and tell us, oh, the government won't enforce that. I don't think that that's adequate assurance to those companies who are competing for contracts where the prime contractor has signed a commitment to get a certain goal of minority participation. The Department of Transportation and the Department of Justice have consistently adhered to the provision that those race-conscious provisions will not be enforced in the direct procurement program in these areas, and there's no evidence that they ever have. Have they told the contractors and subcontractors? Yes, they have, and they reaffirmed that. Where is that? Well, this memorandum... This went out to Federal Lands Highway Division engineers. We have no indication that the people who signed these commitments have been put on notice that these commitments do not bind anymore. Well, Justice Scalia, it strikes me, and I respectfully submit that you're switching it around. It seems to me that Adirond has the responsibility to suggest or demonstrate to this Court that it's actually being hurt or that there is some evidence that race-conscious decisions are being made in the contracting process, and Adirond has not demonstrated with respect to even the three contracts it mentioned that it was the low bidder. Do you think that for a single minute, if these clauses required racial discrimination in absolute clear patent violation of the 14th Amendment, that we would say there's no standing for a minority who wanted these removed? Not for a single minute. Well, I wouldn't contradict that, but I would say that when the government has made it absolutely clear that it is not enforcing race-conscious remedies as instructed by this Court in the first Adirond decision, except in a narrowly tailored fashion, there's been subsequent legislation of a compelling need, but that that response to that compelling need has been narrowed down to the areas where it is necessary. But the provision hasn't been removed from the contract. The provision was not removed in some of those contracts, and I can't tell this Court how many, but it is explicitly clear, and there is no evidence to contradict that those race-conscious provisions are not being enforced. If they were being enforced, do you agree that Adirond has standing to challenge it? If they were being enforced, and Adirond could suggest that it was somehow affected by that, and it has not been able to do that either, because in respect to the three contracts, its own lodging, and I would refer the Court in part to C-1 of tab M in the first volume of the yellow submission, which is a sheet in which this is the Adirond submission, and tab M refers to one of those contracts just as an example, and it says in that document, this is an Adirond document, who was awarded the work we bid, and then it circles the company who was awarded the bid, if not us, why not, and it's scribbled in here from Adirond, we were not high. We were high. Excuse me. They were the high bidder. They were the high bidder, and therefore they didn't get the contract because they were not the low bidder, and that's true if it takes a little bit of combing through the record, but it's demonstrably true with respect to those other two contracts as well. And you think they're not at risk of that happening in other contracts when these provisions still exist in the contract clauses, and all we have is your assurance? If I were the prime contractor, I'd say I better not take a chance. Yeah, I understand that there is somewhere floating around the government a memorandum that says that they won't enforce this, but I've never been told about it. Well, Justice Scalia, it has been the documented, articulated policy since the Department of Justice study. The guidelines went out to all federal agencies 
not to employ these programs except under certain conditions. The Commerce Department implemented that decision, and there's no evidence to the contrary. What programs? Let's, let's be clear about what programs we're talking about. I understand that at an early date, we said until, until these studies are done and, and the studies show no underutilization, the compensation and, and the other two programs would, would not be used. But as far as I know, my, the, the, the first indication that the contracting commitment would not be used is this memorandum of August 24, 2001. Is, is there any earlier memorandum? Well, if you look at the government... Dealing with the contracting clauses. No, but the, the, what, what there is is a Department of Justice uh, requirement imposed upon all federal agencies not to employ race-conscious remedies in when, those areas. When, when was that memorandum? That was in 1996. Well, but why, if that went out in 1996, was it necessary to have this memorandum in the summer of 2001, if that had, if the early one had any effect? Well, it, well the, the memorandum in August of, of 2001 reiterates the policy that the Department of Transportation had been operating Would under. Would you read the 96 one? I, I think it's, it's pretty clear to me that the 96 one did not cover the contracting uh, requirement. It just covered the other three programs. I don't agree with you. I, I, where is, where, where is I, I can't. I can't give you a cite to the record, but the 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 the, the Department of Justice um, uh, memoranda uh, is in the government's appendix. It's a it's a lengthy document, and it makes it clear that race-conscious remedies cannot be used except in those areas subject to the Department of Commerce benchmark study. Is there another reason here why it doesn't apply? And that is, and I, I read this somewhere. Uh, that mountain gravel is itself a small business, and for that reason, the clause wouldn't apply in any. It would that. not have applied in 1989 when this case first arose. The sub—that's that's a very good point, Justice Souter. When this case first arose, mountain gravel was not was a small business enterprise itself. At the appendix to the government's brief at pages uh, 202 to 203 to 204, the actual contract is listed. That box is checked, are you a small business enterprise? That's checked. And then on the page which contains the subcontractor, subcontracting clause itself, the language in there specifically says, this shall not apply to small business concerns. Well, what, now, why, is so, it, why is it then that, that what they say in the first three pages of their reply brief, for example, is that they have to, they, they want to get a sub under a prime that the Wienemunch Construction Authority got the prime. And they got the prime contract on August 27, 2001. And when they got the contract, they looked up the request for bid. And in the request for bid, there was an appendix. And in that appendix, it gave an example of just what the prime had to have. And one of the things the prime had to have was a promise that it would use its best efforts to try to get subs awarded to small business, uh, the disadvantaged small businesses. So they're saying, at least on that one, we saw right in the contract uh, the that we saw right right there, the kind of thing that you say doesn't exist. Well, as I say, they weren't not the low bidder in that contract. They weren't at a disadvantage. All right, but they're that saying, we give you situation. three examples. You know, we're a guardrail company. And we're going to go and we're going to bid again and again and again. And the last three all have these examples in it, which you say I wouldn't have gotten anyway, but maybe in the future we'll get it anyway. Well, uh, all I can say is that the government has announced its policy, and there's no evidence in the record that it has acted inconsistently with okay. any application of race-conscious remedies in the area in so which it was just a mistake, possibly, the Appendix C. But if that's, if that's so, do you think we should just send this back to the Tenth Circuit and say, okay, you sort it this, out. They this, say they're facing these clauses all the time. You say they're absolutely not facing them. Colorado isn't a place uh, where this is appropriate, and that's the end of it, and let them sort it out. Well, I think it's very should. important to emphasize that this is a facial challenge uh, to the statute and to the system. And this Court has consistently said that unless there are no set of circumstances under which the regulation and the statute could be enforced in a constitutional matter, that's the Salerno oh, but, case. Well, what, what's, a, what's a facial challenge in, in this context? I mean, it seems to me a lot of the questioning here and uh, to uh, Adirondack's counsel 
has been to show that Adirond was directly affected by the thing. And uh, so I, I don't think you're really talking about a facial challenge I, in the sense we use that in the First Amendment. I respectfully uh, disagree with respect to whether Adirond was adversely affected by the program. They have not demonstrated that they lost a single contract as a result of, of, of the provisions which, they're challenge, which they've decided now to challenge. Well, they certainly, in, in the case we first, we first uh, decided, the 1995 case, uh, we decided that they, they, they were sufficiently affected, so we ruled. Yes, and they were affected by that. I, we're not contending that they did not have standing to challenge that subcontracting they compensation challenged provision. that financial compensation provision, yes. which now has been found to be unconstitutional. Yes. And it's out of the picture. That's correct. But now we have a new set of arguments, basically. Yes, right? and, and, and to the extent that the, the, the program as it exists requires uh, people to, in order to be designated as a um, uh, disadvantaged business enterprise, must file um, certificates um, articulating that they have been the victim of a social and economic disadvantage. What does that mean? Well, it's defined in the statute. I, I, I could probably uh, certify to that. For yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it depends on what you mean by social or economic. I mean, there well, it's club, it, country clubs I couldn't get into. It's, it's, it's explained in the statute, um, both with respect to ethnic and racial prejudice because of their identity as a group without regard to individual qualities, and that economic disadvantage, the ability to compete, in the free enterprise system has diminished capital and credit opportunities as compared to others in the same business area. Either one of those, either social or economic, even though the social would, would, no, quite, both, would both. be quite irrelevant to whether you can... Uh, both can, well, that's a social, the, the use of the term in the statute described a victim of, of prejudice or bias, um, and that has had economic effect on the individual. Both of those points are required. Um, the regulations themselves... I, I, I think the form is attached to the reply brief of the... No, that, that form is a... That is not the right form? That is not the right form. There is a, that's, a, that's, it's, that's a part of a notice of proposed rulemaking. That form has never been adopted. I'm, I'm reasonably confident that it never will be ad, um, adopted. The, the regulations which explain in further detail social and economic disadvantage well, are contained... I'm just saying, if this isn't the right form, what is what? The, the form has not yet been... The forms, the, the, different states use different forms. There's no uniform form, but the regulations explain... But apparently what, what the agency proposed, proposed on May 8, 2001, simply says, I hereby certify that I am a member of one of the following groups, you check the minority group, and that I have held myself out as a member of that group. I further certify I'm the owner of a company seeking DBE certification, and that I have experienced social disadvantage due to the effects of discrimination based upon my, check all that apply, race, ethnicity, gender, other. Print name, signature, date. That, but that, is, that is a... That's what the agency said. Let's float this. Maybe this is what we'll adopt, right? Yeah, but, the, but, the, but, the, but that has to be looked at in terms of the, what the statute defines as social and economic disadvantage and what the regulations, which are... In, in, at pages um, 70 to 72A of the government's appendix, which define, which, which are the regulation, Department of Transportation regulations. And it's a, it's a rebuttable and challengeable position, Justice Scalia. It has to be signed um, uh, before a notary. The agency... Well, how would one go about rebutting it? I mean, who could rebut it, and how would you go about uh, it? Any uh, adversely affected party can rebut it. The state may challenge it. In but, fact, I mean, what, what, what would many you have of, to show to rebut it? Well, what you have to show to be entitled to certification, according to the regulations, is substantial and chronic social disadvantage in the business world, and that and that credit has been impaired due to diminished capital or opportunities have been impaired due to diminished capital and credit opportunities as compared to others in the same or similar line of business. Uh, I submit... Social disadvantage in the business world. What, what, what is that? Social, and, social disadvantage, Justice Scalia, is defined in the statute as having been a victim of racial or, or, or prejudice of that nature and that had, it has produced 
economic disadvantage. You say two opposite things on this economic disadvantage. You say in your brief that you have to sign an affidavit that says, my ability to compete in the free enterprise system has been impaired due to diminished capital and credit opportunities. Then you say, moreover, if you have more than $750,000 net worth, you're out of it. You can't qualify. They say something completely different. They say that if you have less than $750,000, you automatically qualify. So that, in fact, despite those words, all that you have to say is, I have less than $750,000. That's the end of it. You qualify. You say, no, that isn't so at all. You're out if it's over $750,000. Which is right? Well, I I believe that we're correct. Um, Once you... you, (laughs) That's the right answer. (laughs) And I hope I said it persuasively. I think the regulations are relatively clear. Once you reach a certain plateau of economic category, you're out. Um, and uh, these, these certifications are invested. There's, uh, again, the regulations explain the state must conduct a relatively um, careful investigation of applications for certification. In fact, I understand it's not in the record, but I understand that um, in the last 12 months in Colorado, um, out of 160 applications, only 65 were So your, your point, to be absolutely explicit, is if you are below the, the plateau, 750000 you still might not qualify as being economically disadvantaged. That's correct. That's our position. And I, and I, I don't um, – well, it is our position. I don't uh, understand the analysis that would come out the other way because I think the statute's relatively clear with respect to that. The, the certifi- so the certifi- in the first place, the certification process requires someone asserting under oath, because that, the, that affidavit requirement is there, that's subject to challenge. Adirond itself said in its cert petition in the most recent case before this one that it was not prepared to sign uh, a certification about social and economic disadvantage because it was afraid of being prosecuted for fraud, perjury, uh, and disbarment charges and things of that, that sort. So, so there's plenty of evidence that people take these things seriously, that the statutory threshold and the regulatory threshold must be met. It may be challenged by people. There are appeal procedures in place and so forth. So that's another step of the narrow tailoring requirement that takes place with respect to this process. So we submit that... With respect to the subject of a compelling governmental interest, this court addressed that very point um, in its first Adirond decision and and, uh, made it clear in the last paragraph of Part 3D of that opinion that the unhappy persistence of both the practice and lingering effects of racial discrimination against minority groups in this country is an unfortunate reality. Well, you you have... when you get to that, General, you have this list of people, uh, you know, some by culture, you know, people from the northern area, Masao, Fiji, Tonga, Kiribati, Juvalu, Nauru, the Federated States of Micronesia, Hong Kong. How, how did all the – what studies put all those Well, in classes? the first place, there's about 30-some years of study by Congress of, of – disadvantage and discrimination, which this court recognized in Full of Love and in Croson and in Adirond, that is taking place in the contracting industry. Those, those the, categories... The, the people from Masao were discriminated in the contracting well, people, people of a certain racial background and a certain color are but, discriminated but, against, and the, those... The, this thing just sets it out in great detail by country. Well, I, I submit that when you, if you were to describe different people of different national backgrounds or racial backgrounds that have been guilty of discrimination, they may fall in any one of those categories. They may come from a certain country in Africa or a, or a certain country in Southeast Asia or a certain uh, uh, Hispanic community. That doesn't change the fact that what the racial discrimination is has been on the basis of the characteristics of skin and nationality, of which those are simply subgroups. Well, but they, but they aren't. It's only those subgroups that get the preference. And in my experience, uh, racial discrimination is usually stupid enough that it's not that reticulated. That well, you don't you know, first, discriminate against people from Gabon, but but not from the next door country. That, 
Well, what, 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 the, what, what, what the Congress said over and over again, on the basis of detailed analytical studies, which are, which are described in considerable detail in the, in the Court of Appeals opinion, and what this Court has said is that there has been the lingering effects, unfortunately, of publicly financed discrimination in the construction industry. What you're referring to, Justice Scalia, is an effort by the government. Now, we have all three branches of government recognizing a significant, serious problem that government has a responsibility to address. What the, what the executive branch did with respect to the regulations and its programs is put a number of measures in to attempt to meet the very points that this Court suggested that are ways to narrowly tailor the remedy, which is certainly um, something that the government has a responsibility to do, to make sure that only individuals that fall into cases where there's actual been, actually been discrimination are the beneficiaries and limits on the program to make sure that it does not go to a broader area or longer temporally than it should. I submit that what we have here is the executive branch attempting to respond to a legitimate, serious problem that all three branches of government have been concerned about in a highly responsible way. And in the face of a facial challenge, it cannot be said that there are not ways that this, these regulations can be implemented in a constitutional fashion. And therefore, to the extent that there is a facial challenge, the uh, petitioner is not met by any stretch of the imagination its burden. If anything, this case should be dismissed as improvidently granted, but if the court rules on the merits, these programs are constitutional against a facial challenge. Thank you, General Olson. Mr. Penley, you have five minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. First of all, uh, the Department of Justice guidelines, the proposed reforms, have never gone final. Uh, they were put out in 1996. They have never been implemented in the direct federal procurement program. Secondly, and relatedly, they have been implemented to some degree with regard to the state aid programs, but that case isn't <laughs> an issue here. Thirdly, the court held in Jackson. How do we know they haven't been implemented? The, the uh, well, Solicitor General tells us they have. Uh, the, the, government, the government concedes uh, with regard to the state aid program that that's not an issue in this in this case, uh, and that's in the government's uh, responsive brief. Uh, however, the, the, the proposed reforms, uh, one need only look at the uh, small business uh, regulations at 13 CFR and, and also the, uh, the, the FAR regulations at 48 CFR. Those are unchanged with regard to this, this race-neutral approach that the, uh, that the United States is talking about. In, this, in the Jacksonville case, uh, what is necessary for Adirond to show is its inability to compete on an equal footing. The fact, and that's what this court held in 1995, and it is still unable to compete on an equal footing because of, of these very uh, various programs they have in place. In the city of Jacksonville, the court, this court refused to permit the city of Jacksonville to remove a program and submit a new program. This court said you don't need to have the self-same program to maintain your challenge. The government can't simply uh, change the program, play this little shell game, and deny this court jurisdiction. This isn't even removing the whole program. This is simply changing the mechanism by which it is applying it and saying, well, we're not using that bad old SCC anymore, but we have this other bull, uh, bag of tricks that we're, we're going to utilize. Uh, the, the court is absolutely right. These contractors out there are on pain of loss of serious money if they don't comply with these mandatory subcontracting plans. The, the term is liquidated damages. In one contract, this guardrail subcontract was $105,000. If that prime does not issue that contract to a DBE, he loses that $105,000. The United States takes it from him. Uh, this is both a facial and an as-applied challenge. We have made that clear consistently. We say the statute is unconstitutional on both. And finally, let me draw the Court's attention uh, to the subcontracting decision by the Tenth Circuit. It's at page 70 to 71 of Adirond's petition appendix. And therein, the Tenth Circuit makes it very clear there used to be a bad old SCC in 1996. That isn't there anymore. We have a brand new SEC that's been changed, and it, it won't be quite so, uh, quite so uh, uh, non-narrowly tailored. But there still is an SEC in place. And finally, Your Honor, the United States told this court that the benchmark study is overdue. 
And I know in my bones, as I know that this case has gone on forever by the United States' effort to make it go on forever and withdraw jurisdiction from this court, that the day this case ends is the day the benchmark study comes out and suddenly and miraculously Colorado's back in the underutilized category and all these mechanisms apply. I think it's incredibly amazing that on the 9th of March of 2000, the man in charge of this program said, don't use the SEC, continue to use the FAR and its mandatory subcontracting plans. And the two weeks before we filed that lodging that showed all those mandatory subcontracting plans, suddenly his instruction from the 9th of March of 2000 was withdrawn and said, wait, wait, don't use the mandatory subcontracting plans out of the FAR. Use the set-asides instead. And whether they call it the set-aside or the mandatory subcontracting plans or the subcontracting compensation clause or the price evaluation adjustments, Adirond is still denied that equal footing this court found in 1995. I urge this court uh, to reach this case on the merits because the day this court says it's moot, is the day Adirond gets standing again because it loses another contract because this program is applied in Colorado, and Adirond will start this sad process again. Thank you for the court's indulgence. Thank you, Mr. Penley. The case is submitted.